0: You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and you're listening to Five Things That Make Life Better. My guest this week is Professor Jennifer Taub, the author of Big Dirty Money, and a professor of law at Western New England School of Law. Friends, Romans, countrymen, it's your scribe William Shakespeare's birthday, April 23rd. I'll never forget. As friends and I were talking the other day, we believe that Shakespeare should survive any purge of dead white male authors that is currently happening in many schools around the country, of all levels, high school and college, due to the need to embrace more diverse and intersectional writers. Yes, we will be discussing race today. I think we should be discussing race every day and trying to understand How not just that white people listen to this show, but those of us who are white can make the world more equitable and fair. The Derek Chauvin trial has ratcheted it up. You cannot ignore systemic racism anymore. It's woven into the fabric of our flag and in our society. And now it's in your face if you didn't know about it. Similarly, but on a smaller scale, is the tumult of news and opinion surrounding. All the private schools in New York City, as well as Vermont, Massachusetts, California, who have signed up for a re-education program that favors diversity, inclusion, and equity. People seem to be losing their minds over it. You may be reading about it wherever you are. I recognize that these are problems of the top 10%, but that school world was the one in which I was raised and the one in which I raised my own exhibit. So I'm very curious about it. You would think the sky had fallen. Letters of protest from faculty, administrators, and parents were either sent to the press or leaked or made public, and there seem to be two sides who, in the tradition of our politics, are shockingly divided. I don't know too many people who have kids that young, but to simplify the debate, there are many who appreciate the new direction of the curriculum, which is to learn about race and how white people have oppressed people of color throughout history. It is both academic, the story of marginalized populations. And it is personal. What have you done inadvertently that makes kids think and sometimes say to their parents things that upset wealthy white people without whom these schools could not survive? The other side says, wait, you're force-feeding this stuff to my kids, and they're not reading To Kill a Mockingbird. They're not reading, which was written by a woman. They're not reading Ethan Frum. Oh, that Ethan Frome* was written by a woman. They're not reading... Hemingway and Jack London? And what happened to the education we were promised? And who are these people you've hired to transform our academy into a Black Lives Matter school? It's pretty ugly. Of course, there's a welter of misunderstanding on both sides. As my stepdaughter pointed out, come on, this is the first year. There's a lot to work out. Give it a little time. Maybe schools can modify the curriculum without metaphorical bloodshed, and maybe parents should trust the schools they've chosen to make some good decisions. Just making billions in your hedge fund doesn't mean you were a pedagogical genius. The point is, white people, including children, need to understand the ways we make assumptions and belittle black people. That is just fundamental. Before Jennifer Taub joins us, these are the five things that made my life better. Number one. The Derek Chauvin verdict. It had to be. America witnessed the murder of Floyd George on all our screens. It was traumatizing to all of us. The blue wall of cops, who almost never in history have turned, as they say, on a fellow cop, had to do that, and they did. The jury rendered its decision guilty on all counts, which doesn't bring George Floyd back, but begins to make the police in this country more accountable. Number two. Darnella Frazier, the 17-year-old who used her cell phone to film the murder. She didn't know what she was filming when she filmed it, but obviously something was amiss. Perhaps calling her the heroine of this case is inappropriate, but if she hadn't filmed it on her cell phone, there would have been no path to justice. I heard her interviewed this week, and of course, she still has terrible trauma from the experience. She witnessed a murder, which would traumatize anyone, but she also feels guilty that she didn't do more, that she didn't intervene. But of course, she risked her life because there were people there who didn't want her filming, and she did plenty. Number three, 85 million Americans have been fully vaccinated. Thank you, Joe Biden. Think about where we were a year ago. It was science fiction that we would have a vaccine this fast. And, you know, if you're 16 or older, go get one if you haven't had it. It feels like a liberating, it just feels fantastic to know that you are vaccinated, but you still must wear a mask. Number four, I can see. (laughs) My eye doctor, Mark Rosenblatt, prescribed new contact lenses for me. Okay, they're bifocal. And I don't need reading glasses anymore. Oh my god, I just feel so wonderful and I see better than I did with my other lenses and Mark, I think you're a genius. Thank you. Number 5, we need to make room in our lives for art. We must for beauty, for just for our mental health. And my dear friend Kelly Curtis sent me a video of actors, I guess, doing a tableau vivant of historical religious paintings. It's on my website at lisabernbach.com. It not just soothed me, it made me forget everything for three minutes, and it's beautiful. And coming up after this break, Professor Jennifer Taub, we're going to talk about this week in history. Don't go away. My guest, Jennifer Taub, who's a law professor at the Western New England School of Law and the author of Big Dirty Money, a Viking bestseller. And I crossed paths in a way probably about 30 years ago in New Haven, as one says. (laughs) I was giving a little talk, and Jennifer was in the audience. And I guess i made an impression on her. Subsequently, she's made a great impression on me on Twitter, where I follow her religiously. She's smart. She's funny. She has great hair. And, you know, we're going to talk about what's happened this week. Is it fair that two white women are talking about justice for George Floyd Well, we're going to do it because it means a lot to us. Being white doesn't mean that we don't care and that this is not perhaps a pivotal moment for America. So welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Really delightful to get to talk to you face-to-face,
1: ear-to-ear. Lisa, It is such an honor to be here, for two reasons. I mean, first, my middle school self, if I could only like pull her forward or pull me backwards, <laughs> I would be flipping, dying and screaming. I feel like I'm channeling her right now. Oh my God. You know, <laughs> <laughs> wait till I <I'm> tell <laughs> my mother. I'll say Lisa Burn, Mama, oh, Yeah, the preppy handbook. Yes. Tell her. Right. Let's get her on the line. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, you don't. know. Okay. Anyhow, no. I love my okay. mom, but she's yeah. a Republican. So there's that. Oh you know, oh interesting topic but but the other reason is I came to find out a year ago that you are a good friend of Eugene Carroll. Yes, and I am. And we're there for mm-hmm. her at a very important crucial moment in her life and, and I just adore Eugene and sort of in a knitting circle with her so it's a small world.
0: Oh my goodness, I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Well, Eugene has become a heroic figure to a lot of us. And she's kind of a hermit. But when she comes to New York, people sort of do that praying, thank you, touching their heart, bowing to her, Mm. because she's really taken on a huge burden for us.
1: It is true. And her case moves forward, bit by bit.
0: It is, despite everything Donald Trump is doing. Yes. So here we are, a day after the verdict, the guilty verdict for Derek Chauvin. And how can we make this moment last in a way? You directed me to your friend Danielle Moody's essay, which I read, which is, is this a one and done thing? Or can we finally Admit that white people and black people are not treated the same in this country at all, not by the police, not by the Department of Justice.
1: I think it is this moment. I mean, I'm hugely relieved by the verdict and I'm also disappointed that we had to be so worried. I think there were so many emotions for us because this is the first time in one of these police killings, one of these tremendous police misconduct cases where the fellow officers turned on one of their own. But this is not the only time this has happened. And we all know that if there hadn't been video cameras, there wouldn't have been charges, let alone convictions. And we saw, I I don't know if you saw this Lisa circulating yesterday, The news release that the police department first put out to report that someone had died in their custody was a lie. And you have to wonder how many other lies there are. So I think for me, I felt a huge sense of relief, but like a lot of sadness that it had to come to this. And then of course, right as the verdict is being announced, we find out a teenage girl is shot. And even the stories around this, you know, this is a a teenage girl who was, I'm forgetting her last name. I think her first name is Michaela. And I don't have her name in front of me, but she was in a foster home. Obviously, there's a whole story about abandonment, dislocation, and apparently had called the police because she felt threatened. And folks are looking at this body camera video and saying, well, she was holding a knife. And we don't know the whole story of why, but it doesn't matter if a teenager is holding a knife, threatening others. There are other ways to deal with it. If you're far away, you could use a stun gun. You know, you could tell the other girls, run. There's so many things, you know, you don't shoot. I mean, you. They, he did, he shot her in the chest four times, murdered a child, and here we are. You know, we remember the story of the you know young boy sitting on a swing playground with a toy gun. And the thing is, all these stories, you know, it's very, as you said, very different outcomes if you're white. You know, we have you know Dylan Roof who murders people in a church, and when he, he's escaping, they capture him and they take him out for, what, a burger? Or this other kid who's now become a hero of law enforcement, and I'm forgetting his name, who had a semi-automatic and killed two people in a protest in Oregon.
0: Oh, right, right. And
1: on and on. Um, examples of where the police find the ability to show incredible restraint to even mass murderers and bring them into custody without incident, but somehow can't figure out how to deal with a teenage girl with a knife without murdering her. So, you know, I hold this all here.
0: One could say, drop your knife. Right. And chances are she would have dropped her knife. Uh, Yeah. And Dante Wright, who was also killed this week. I mean- We are a country of guns. It just seems like...
1: I want to talk about the whiteness piece, though, that you began with. You know, I think that with the murder of George Floyd last summer, I had something in me awakened that I didn't fully get. And it has to do with the kind of brainwashing that we have, if you are white and grew up in a predominantly white suburb, I grew up in the Midwest. And when I grew up in the suburb of Michigan, it was highly segregated. There was this white flight out of Detroit into the Northwest suburbs, and there wasn't much integration at the time. And the story that if you look at the world around you and say, I'm observing that, you know, when I see the television and people being arrested, I see it's mostly, you know, black teenagers or black adults and not white adults. And there's a lot of cognitive dissonance because you know your friends are smoking pot and they're underage drinking and you know When the police come, if they come, it's to tell you to turn down the music, and if they come a second time, it's to say, okay, this party's over, and they shut it down, and no one is rounded up and goes to jail. And you know, when your family member becomes heavily addicted to drugs, you know they go into rehab, they don't go into police custody, right? And so we have this cognitive dissonance in our lives. But even if we don't know that, even if that's not the world that you're willing to admit that you participate in and the differences, the only way in our minds, unless our our families around us are overtly racist which no, I, I did not know people who were, I know there are. The way you come to understand it is you're told it's not about race. It's just that as a result of X, Y, and Z, maybe historical oppression, legacy of racism, that people of color live in poorer communities. And if you're poorer, you're going to commit more crimes because you're more desperate, right? There was nobody when I grew up who would actually admit that this was a kind of systemic racism, that there was racial animus behind this, As opposed to the real facts on the ground are that black people commit more crimes. We were raised this way without anyone saying it that you know black adults were a threat, more of a threat than white adults. And then when we grew up, at least my experience is the people who were committing sexual assault were the you know people in our own peer groups, the white men. Our home when I grew up was broken into by the dentist, the white dentist kid down the street. In other words, there's there's the story and then there's our reality. And I think Mm -hmm. I don't. I'm just one last piece where this is going to connect. I promise you, I'm not going to run on forever. But it dawned on me that the reason why these are the stories that white women get in particular, especially about the dangers of white men, has to do with the white supremacy piece. Because if white women would marry or have children with black men, then their children aren't going to be considered white, and this will, you know, end white supremacy. The flip side of that, though, is. If white men, and I know there are more races than black and white, but I'm just using this as simplicity here because this is what we're talking about in particular African-American people, that if a white man has a child with a black woman, what is the story around that? The story is, you know, the lie that she's a temptress, right? The story that we put... Uh, To blame mm -hmm. black women, usually, and this is where we over-sexualize black women. So if you look at the whole construct about, if you understand underlying all this white supremacy and the fear and the fight against a multiracial America, that's why these stories have to keep happening. And also, you know, there's obviously the economic oppression. There's all this, but it's all... I mean white supremacy is I you know I you know I knew about patriarchy but I didn't really think how strongly people are still fighting so hard to maintain white supremacy and that's the struggle we're in. And I think until we address that as the theory that's pushing all of this, we're never going to reform police departments whether we cut their budgets or not because then we're going to vigilante groups like the Klan taking care of this. So I think we really have to tackle white supremacy head on. And that's why it's good that two white women are talking about it, because how do we benefit from it? And how are we perpetuating it? Anyway, sorry for that long winded comment, Lisa. No,
0: no. You know what, Jennifer, I find it fascinating. I'm just thinking about how I grew up and how I grew up was thinking we never talked about races. Why would we talk about it? Right. My father was born in Germany. We had the Holocaust as our history and as our narrative. There was no overt animus towards anybody. There was just the desire, I guess, to be a little bit self-protective since my father had escaped the Nazis, uh, uh, literally and figuratively. But what I noticed when George Floyd was murdered and thought about Rihanna Taylor and Trayvon Martin and every Black person who's been killed, Eric Garner, for a long time by white cops, I really just was ashamed that I didn't know it. I guess that's how I felt, ashamed. And I didn't really connect the dots. I had, in fact, seen them as isolated incidents, but now it's not isolated. Now we know that. The essays I've been reading written by Black people about the exhaustion of living as a Black person in this country just make me grieve. The idea that you don't do things that white people can do, like hang on a, hang out on a corner with your friends or walk home from the gym at night. I mean, simple things that aren't privileges, that are just within your rights as a person, as a human being, and the fact that we don't have that, and the fact that so many cops are so eager to shoot. I mean, as you say, Black people, not white people. There must be a way to investigate the police all over this country and make our safekeeping force a group of people who care about others And there has to be social workers. Exactly. And if they don't bring that rehabilitation safety net for criminals or for the arrested, you know... It's never going to change.
1: You know, it's so right, and it's re- thinking about sort of the common factors that come up in these incidents, like with situation with the young girl yesterday being shot. You know, outside of her own home, a social worker needed to be in that situation.
0: Absolutely.
1: Thinking Absolutely. about, you know, I had never even thought about this. Like, why do we even have police doing traffic stops? We can. We don't even have toll booths anymore. Right. Right. Right now. I just drive down the road with my transponder and they charge me to be on the toll road. Similarly, there are places where people are speeding. You can just have a camera do that. the same thing if you're you know, if you have. What
0: what are traffic stops, though? What are they? How come I've never had one? What is it? Yeah.
1: I mean, well, a traffic stop is when you're you've been pulled over for speeding, haven't you?
0: Uh maybe. Maybe. Yes.
1: Or one time you're you know, you're pulled
0: No, I have been pulled over, but it's not a routine thing. I mean, why was Dante Wright pulled over? I read it was because he had that hanging scent right. thing his in his car. His mom said that's what it was,
1: and they said it was because his inspection sticker was out of date, but everyone's inspection stickers are out of date because of- The pandemic, nobody's so
0: gone to it, right.
1: And the thing is, the reason why they want to be able to do the pullovers, is this is a way to get around the Fourth Amendment where you're not supposed, you know, we have a Fourth Amendment that says you're not supposed to research without a warrant, but there's all kinds of, and I'm speaking generally, you know, but there's all kinds of exceptions to to that. If there's exigent circumstances, if it's incident to you know, if you if you happen to be stopping someone because their tail light's out and then you claim you smelled hot or you could see into the car and you saw a gun, it's a way to try to detect other kinds of crime. But you gotcha. right? but they're but, yeah. you know, there's got to be, you know, a different way for dealing with. Well, let me just say there are other reasons why, because municipalities make money on these. Remember the whole story about when we had Michael the Quotas, Brown. right?
0: Well, we had quotas in New York. Oh. And so you knew that you get a parking ticket at the end yep. of the month. They were, you know, motivated to do it. Right. And so, right. The same thing and, with marijuana yes, I mean, How can we yeah. be in a country yeah. where
1: Massachusetts, you know, has legalized recreational cannabis use and people are still being, people still have records in New York and we know who have the records. I mean, you know, we're living this right now. And the idea that there's, you know, if I had any kind of power or authority, if I were the mayor of New York, I would say, we're not, not only are we are not doing this arrest, but I'm, you know, I want to find a way to make a motion to erase and expunge everyone's record, even if they don't apply. Why should people have to hire a lawyer to have their records expunged? Right. I mean, there's a lot of sort of, I think, low-hanging fruit to make a gesture right now about how messed up things have been. But, you know, where is the task force right, to, uh, to, to, do this, right. to make this list?
0: Right. Especially, well, now in New York, marijuana was just made legal. And so all the people in Rikers Island, wherever they are for weed felonies should be, you're right, and no lawyers. And that is, that would be a beautiful, generous way to say, we see you, we hear you. And Please forgive us.
1: Well, sure. And all drug, I mean, drug trafficking, you know, why are we spending our time on you know, low level people involved in drug trafficking who are spending their life in prison? That would never happen to a wealthy person. I mean, when I was in college, I remember stories, or maybe it was when I was in high school, uh, there was some prep school. Was it Cho? Or some kids like, mm-hmm. did they go get an airplane or something?
0: Yes, they what did. What was that story, yeah, Well, those, wack, those wacky preppies. <laughs> yes, they They did, a group of them who did things together, chartered a plane and flew to Columbia, South America to the source because, you know, they wanted the best. And listen to us, we laugh
1: about it. Did any of them go to jail or no?
0: Yeah, yeah. One guy went to jail. I think the mastermind, the genius behind that went to jail. I believe. Wonder where
1: he is now but on Wall Street, or
0: no? <laughs> probably, he's probably one of the guys writing letters saying, "I don't want my child oh my to be inundated by this rhetoric." Rarely, or
1: something Le- was that?
0: Yes. Let's let's segue to that for okay. a second, because in New York City, where I am, you're not. There is this big, big tsunami of interest in the anti-racist curriculum that has been adopted by the private schools, all of the private schools in New York and many around the country. Your alma mater may be one of them. I know schools in Vermont have, Massachusetts and California. And now parents are saying they don't want their children brainwashed. And they can write a facile letter that makes it seem that they're studying race in lieu of all the other academic departments, which isn't exactly how it is. But when we see the injustice, the imbalance, the cognitive dissonance, Mm -hmm. as you call it, why shouldn't we be focusing on Black history and Black culture and all the beautiful things that we haven't studied and haven't acknowledged all these years?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think that. What disturbed me so much about this father's letter is
0: the mad dad.
1: Well, the poor girl. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm guessing she must be in middle school because he said she'd been there since kindergarten. She was, um, been there seven years. Seven years. Where's her voice, first of all? Secondly, he sent it to all the parents, not just to the administration. And then he sends it off to Barry Weiss, or somehow she gets a copy, but he knows it's going to go viral. And those other parents maybe don't agree with him. Maybe they're black or other people of color. And Right. Also it was there were a lot of inaccurate statements that he made, not just about what he I think he was describing the curriculum to be, but like these ridiculous things he was saying, like, um, there hasn't been any structural racism since nineteen sixty five. Sixty five. And I'm like, yeah. Well, you know, I guess you know everything, you know. I, I mean <laughs> I don't you know, it's just not you know, and it right. it just felt like he was You know, I I don't know. And he also just seemed like a rageaholic also, you know, that. Right. But he's claiming that there are others who feel the same way, who are afraid to. Too
0: afraid to speak up. up. And so he's now their hero and their unappointed spokesperson. But you're right. His daughter, first of all, will possibly be shunned at her school at Brearley. She will have a hard time. You know what? No private school wants him as a dad. And if all the private schools are really trying to figure out how to design their curriculum so that it's fair and so there's more inclusivity and equity and diversity, he'll have to send his kid to public school. That's not the worst thing in the world, but it's going to be tough for her.
1: Yeah, and apparently, I haven't read it now, there was something circulating from a student there that she was sending about her feeling about the curriculum. You know, and the thing about critical thinking skills is, you know, I do think his letter becomes, at least for the kids at that school, a really important moment where they can talk critically about what is it that he's saying? Is there anything legitimate in his concerns or not? And to really let's do, you know, I think students can talk about what they think and it's great. I think that a student's speaking out. I think that sending the letter to these parents was a posture. He should have just written an op-ed. Apparently he's also yeah. a little li- nuts um, in addition to being racist. He, uh, I think he's one of these either anti-vaxxers or coronavirus deniers or something. I don't know. I Don't quote oh, me on wow. that, but you know.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, so in other words, and it's not just at that school, there's been tumult everywhere. And- I don't know how are your students dealing with this situation. Have you have you taught a class since the verdict was announced? So, have yeah, it's interesting. You-
1: my last classes were on Monday. And in my white collar crime class, I think I took a poll. It's a pretty small class. And I said, Who thinks he'll be convicted of it, you know, second degree? Meaning, you know, will he get and none of them thought. I was the only one. And I said, Well, I guess I'm more of an optimist than you are. So they were very cynical about what would happen next. but it didn't. my other class is a commercial law class and it just didn't come up.
0: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Well, cynicism is another thing we're going to have to dismantle because I guess that creates a kind of disinterest too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that as we were talking about before, I mean, the fatigue of this, the sadness of this, and the realizing that if we really are talking about people being in denial about Or some actually being overtly interested in white supremacy and and they're trying to hold on to that. It's a real issue. And you hear it in, you know, someone like Tucker Carlson on Fox News saying, well, people don't want a lot of change right away. And what is he talking about? I mean, there are, I'm watching this great series on Netflix called Amend. My middle schooler told me about it because their teacher mentioned it. So it's, it's like a six part or seven part series. Will Smith leads it. It's really interesting because you have, it's basically talking about the 14th Amendment but it's going hmm. through from when it was enacted all the way through the present different topics about what it's important was but it's it's you have all these experts who are interviewed including Brian Stevenson and their name but then you have all these actors who are playing the roles of different people throughout history And, you know, the same arguments that we hear today were the arguments that we heard around, you know, Reconstruction, where you wouldn't believe it, like, just a few years after slavery ends, and after the Civil War, people are like, well, we've coddled Black people enough. You know, white people are saying this, and you're like, what the hell? And what was really interesting is, you know, it's going through the period when Reconstruction, everyone was so hopeful, but then there was this tremendous backlash in the South, right? That's when all the Confederate statutes go up. And then this is the other thing that made me so sad, which was, the North lost interest, you know, and the, you know, well, yes, right, and that's the thing that you, you, you know, you're talking about. It's
0: their problem down there. It's it has nothing to and do with us. Of course, there's that's plenty of racism
1: right. in the North, but then you, you know, the the periods of time whenever there were periods when Black Americans gained footing, gained power gained, economic stability, you have backlash. And, you know, this is what we're seeing right now, I think, is people are trying to hold on to this last vestige of wanting America to be majority white. You know, this is where Tucker Carlson is saying we can't, you know, this is the anti-immigration thing. It's not all immigrants they don't want. It's people they don't perceive as white. Or, you know, the whole, like, what was the thing they said at Charlottesville? Jews.
0: Shithole countries. Jews will not
1: (laughs) replace us, right?
0: Replace us, right. You know, and
1: like... It's weird being Jewish because we were so, you know, our generation. We, we, our parents tried to assimilate, and you know, we assimilated, or we thought we did. But I, I never really believed there was that much anti-Semitism. But what did I know? And what do I know? No one's going to say something to me. And it's, you know, it's so key. It's right, and I think it's right. Jewish and it's, it's everywhere. To align yourself with the black community while recognizing that if you're a white Jew. And there are Jews of color, of course, Um, but if you're a white Jew, you know, we have white privilege, but we should align ourselves with the oppressed because the same people who want Anglo-Saxon, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, or maybe they're saying Anglo-Saxon caucus, which, you know, they're the same people who don't, who think we're evil too, so.
0: Or consider us a different actual race. I think that's a great place for us to pause, only to say that I learned that lynching was only made a federal crime in 2020 yeah. or 2019. And that's because there were three Black senators who really you know, committed to it and worked it. But how about that? I mean, that that's crazy that it took yeah, till last I mean, last just to be year. clear,
1: it's not lawful to murder somebody, but to specifically call it out for what it is, I think is really important at the federal level, as opposed yes. to just state level offenses, right? Right, right.
0: Okay. So to conclude a uh, couple of white chicks talking about what's happened this week, I agree with you that you know, it's, it's time to really make a change. And every other black person who was killed by a cop, those cops have to be called to trial to justice. Everyone now, it just it, it burns me up. And some
1: of the I, some of the decisions have been made. I mean, the, the you know, know Pantaleo but- who killed Eric Garner, they decided not to prosecute him. You know, it's just can that be
0: appealed again or no? I
1: don't think so because I think the statute of limitation ran.
0: We have to do better, we have to do better. And you know, with people like you and with people like Danielle Moody, all our voices need to be raised and our eyes need to open and we need to admit it just admit that we have been complicit and we will. We've got to change the way our country is balanced, I guess. But who knows how we'll do that. But this is an uplifting show. You are an uplifting person. You've been smiling. I've been smiling. Let's talk about your five things that make your life better because it's a nice list. (laughs) And I have it in front of me. Number one, Jennifer Taub, is...
1: Number one is coffee in, uh, any of its forms, you know, depending on the time of day, you know, you start (laughs) out with the hot coffee. Um, and then I think you move on to the iced coffee later in the day. And if I have to be at a bar drinking, you know, and it's late, I get so sleepy. So Irish coffee is just fine.
0: I think so. And that's many food groups right there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When I was younger, (laughs) before you weren't supposed to not smoke, my three food groups were coffee, cigarettes, and chocolate.
0: Oh, that sounds like my diet, too. <laughs> uh, um, number two.
1: Oh, so my second one is my puppy, Ponzu.
0: Ponzu. Not Ponzi. No, my Ponzu. kids joke around.
1: They call him Ponzu scheme. He named after the sauce. And he is a um, six-month-old Bernadoodle, mini Bernadoodle. And he's adorable. He's He's really all over Twitter. And he was invited by Casey Hunt to make a cameo next time I'm on way too early because of this. I'll just show you the tweet later, but yeah.
0: Okay. Oh, cool. Um, we have a six-month-old oodle-doodle as well. Sheila, she's a cavapoo. Oh, sweet. Why isn't it called a cavadoodle? Either
1: poo or I doodle, depending upon the other word. I don't know how the grammar works, but maybe we have to ask a you know linguistic specialist on that.
0: Yes, that, that we should. Is Ponzu a good dog?
1: Sometimes. He's a bit of a biter, yeah. and I'm trying to get him not to do that. How about your, how about Ours Sheila? Just, Is she good?
0: Well, Sheila has outsmarted me so many times. <laughs> she knows where the pads are. She knows. Why doesn't she always use them? We don't know. I mean, my own children, my exhibits were not as wily as this puppy.
1: I think the poodle makes them too smart, honestly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we got ours with a certificate that said she was guaranteed admission to Dartmouth. So, <laughs> I know I know they are smart, but are they trainable? That's the that's the question. Number 3.
1: My third is poetry.
0: In particular, what do you love? You
1: know, these days I've been reading all different kinds of things like Jericho Brown. If I see there's a new poet sometimes who's won an award, I'll buy their work. But, you know, I often just sink back into old favorites. And I love by like T.S. Eliot. I
0: love Rock* so much.
1: Depending on where I am in my life, there's a place for me in that poem you know, I hope I never get so old. I mean, there, there are places for me in that poem, when I felt like I was being confronted, I felt like I was pinned and wriggling against a wall, or, you know, whenever I see You know, I love dogs. And so the smoke that rubs its back against the window pane. you know, the way I I, I can live inside of that poem sometimes. But there's, you know, sometimes it's just, I appreciate poetry sometimes because I can just luxuriate in the language and the imagery without caring so much about politics.
0: I think a break from politics is however you get it. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Number four.
1: It's friendship. Like this one. I don't have many, you know, over the years... I tend to be, um, I live a little bit in my head. So as a child, you know, you have these dear friends you have. But when we went off to college, there was no social media. So there's this big rupture. You know, Mm -hmm. high school, we all scattered, you know, and I went east and this one went to Chicago and that one to California. And although we reacquainted now, when you left at the summer, the end of the summer after your senior year, you didn't see people again. And then after college, four years, bright college years, all this stuff. And then I go on to law school. And so every period of my time when I could have been carrying these really relationships forward, they broke, right? And so then over time my friendships became more utilitarian, you know, where I became friendly with people who I worked with or who you
0: worked with. And and I tend to, you know, be
1: more of a kind of organizer worker person. So I become friends with people if I'm on a board with them or if I'm organizing a protest. And I think with the pandemic, I've begun to treasure these real friendships because I can't see people anymore. And so now I spend time with people, even if it's not work, I suppose, you know, so friendship.
0: It does sustain. And actually, if I had had social media growing up, I probably wouldn't have, have made it to an adulthood <laughs> because I would have been bullied beyond Aww. what you can believe. But, but social media has reconnected me to a lot of people from my past, which I like. Me too. I like finding old friends who, or they weren't even friends, and now they approach with friendship and they remember my parents or they remember my brothers or whatever. I, it's very touching to no, me. No, it is. And it
1: rounds out our humanity. Instead of freezing somebody where they were at one time, and you've allowed yourself to evolve in advance. Now you can reconnect with them when they have to. It's, it's nice.
0: Yes, it is nice. And number five.
1: It's absolutely sunlight. I mean, this time of year, especially with the pandemic, I mean, here where I live, people are very strict and I've had no one over to my house. And, you know, it's um, being outside when it's sunny instead of being trapped indoors. It's uh, in the warmth of the sun. I mean, it's just, it's mood altering. I love it.
0: Every sunny day, (laughs) I call my 90-year-old mother and say, you have to go outside. It will fix you. And it does. It does. Well, Jennifer, it's been great to see you. Great to talk with you. I envy your students. And I'm really, this is just the beginning of how we're going to go forward because misunderstanding racism is the topic. Yes. And it's going to be the top. And it must be until we fix things. I agree. You've been listening to five things that make life better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Professor Jennifer Taub, a professor at Western New England School of Law and author of the book, Big Dirty Money, published by Viking. You can follow Professor Taub on Twitter at Jen Taub. Her website is jennifertaub.com. My blog is at lisabirnbach.com, where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program. This podcast is produced in New York City by TheFieldTV.com. My engineers, Kevin Watkins, my team, Espresso Rucci, Michael Port, Poco Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, please wear a mask and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.